Hi, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Dr. Kate Mazur, the author of Until Justice Be Done America's First Civil Rights Movement From the Revolution to Reconstruction. She's a professor of history at Northwestern. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Mazur. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. We're familiar with images of people being hit with fire hoses, of marches across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, of Martin Luther King at the Lincoln Memorial saying he has a dream. Those events helped lead to the desegregation of schools, to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, to the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But that was not the first time Black Americans insisted on having equal rights. Dr. Mazur's book explains how, from America's founding to after the Civil War, there were similar coordinated efforts to overturn unjust laws, along with demands that American life be offered to everyone. Dr. Mazur, when did you realize that the story of the first civil rights movement needed to be given a place in our collective conscious? Well, thank you so much. And that's, uh, that is a great question because um, there is a specific moment when I realized that I wanted to try to write this book uh, well. <laughs> it's probably more complicated than that, but the but when I was I wrote my first book, which started out as my PhD dissertation on the Civil War and Reconstruction and struggles for racial equality in Washington D.C. And I was finishing up that book, which I had been working on for a really long time, and I was thinking about the Republican politicians who came into office in the 18, early 1860s when Lincoln was elected, and how it seemed to me from my research on D.C that they not only wanted to stop slavery and abolish slavery where they believed they constitutionally had the power to do that, but they also came into office wanting to repeal racist laws, um, laws that required free black people to register with local officials, laws that put certain constraints on free African-Americans right to gather in groups, to um, have practice certain trades. And, and they came into Washington immediately wanting to repeal those laws as well. And we see them doing that in the District of Columbia where they had um, full jurisdiction. And I wanted to write a sentence in the introduction to this first book saying, you know, the Republicans came into power wanting to repeal racist laws that has already been established. And then normally what you do is write a footnote, you know, you'd go see who established that and then move on. And I found that there was really no book to footnote on that question. Um, there wasn't a book that explained where these white politicians would have even gotten the idea that they should support repeal of racist laws above and beyond actually appeal, uh, opposing slavery itself. And so that was the germ of an idea that like, well, we ought to know this history. Um, and I didn't take a direct linear route to, to the book after that, but it, it really stuck with me that we didn't actually even really know the answer to that question. <laughs> That's the danger of having a new idea is that then you have to write a book about it. Uh, <laughs> spend five, 10 years of your life. Um, so one of the things that you say early on in the book is that um, this goes beyond abolition. And I wanna talk about that too. Um, but, but first of all, let's have you explain the lay of the land as America is founded 
the lay of the land for black Americans. Many of us probably know that in the 20th century, there were laws that made it difficult, if not impossible, for black people to vote or laws that prevented a black person from using public transportation, or uh, at least in the same way, or segregated schools, or water fountains, or bathrooms. Um, but going beyond slavery, what laws were there in early America that made black people and activists upset? And what was their responses? What, what were their responses to them? Well, so one of the things, just to frame the book, and I start around the period of the American Revolution, is that when the American Revolution happened, slavery was essentially legal and practiced to varying degrees um, everywhere in, in the British colonies, in British North America, and then in the early United States. Um, and one of the most important things we have to realize about slavery, this is, may seem obvious, but that uh, slavery and the kinds of laws that created slavery applied only to people of African descent. So there were a variety of kinds of coercion uh, in the United States. There were many ways that people were not free, but the specifics of human bondage only applied to black people, people of African descent. And so, and then the, you know, associated with slavery from very early on were an array of kinds of preconceptions that were used to justify slavery too. So uh, about race, right? So certain kinds of ideas about how races, different races of people are different from one another that people used um, to justify slavery. So you have, um, so, so one of the most significant things that happens with the American Revolution and afterwards is some states start to abolish slavery and others double down on it. And that's also a really important thing to understand right now in the middle of a lot of debates about the Constitution and what the Constitution really did and did not say about slavery. The question of, at the beginning of the United States, whether a state was going to have slavery was left up to the states. And so um, states like New York and Pennsylvania moved to eradicate slavery, to make it illegal. And then other states over the course of the first decades of the, of the 19, late 18th and early 19th century doubled down uh, after maybe a brief period in some places of considering gradually abolishing slavery in places like Virginia, um, these states, pass more and more laws, making it more you know, legal and kind of enforcing slavery. So you have the beginning of this bifurcation that by the civil, time of the Civil War really defines the United States. There's a North where slavery is illegal. There's a South where slavery is legal. In the North, however, or go ahead. No, no, yeah. well, uh, I was gonna say one of the things I love about the book is that there is such great detail and it makes it very clear that this is a system in place and that the system had many um, rivets and bolts and nuts and details to it that, was, that were designed to work in cohesion with one another. I was thinking of it like a car, like you couldn't have a car, if it, even if it had the most perfect steering wheel and perfect wheels in the world, you would have to have, uh, the, still you'd have to have a fuel injector and a gas tank and a bumper to make everything go properly. And that was how these laws were set up. And your books, your book makes that so clear. I, I you, you spend the first part of, you know, a lot of the first part of the book talking about Ohio, where black people had to register. I mean, they actually had to register as a human being and say, hello, I'm a black person. It's almost like uh, I'd like to drive a car in the, in, in the same way. Um, of course, it's not a, you know, uh, it, it, it was just striking to see how detailed this all got. You say that they were seen as unwanted sojour uh, sojourners as opposed to citizens. What was the stated justification 
for these rules, the stated goals, including having to register, school funding, curfews, testifying in court, what did white supremacists want? Well, yeah, so so we have the beginnings of the United States and then states, even those that abolished slavery, have to varying degrees laws that discriminate against free black people. And, and these are the laws that are mostly the subject of the book. And, and the book has a lot to do with how people mobilized against those kind of laws. So Ohio is really interesting because uh, all of these Midwestern states come into the union basically with slavery more or less illegal. So they never have slavery. And yet, the, from the very beginning, Ohio, Illinois, and Indiana are passing laws that, as you just described, they make black people register with county officials if they want to live in a certain county. Uh, they bar black people from testifying in court cases involving whites. They say that white uh, that school systems are for white children only. They prohibit black men from voting. Um, what were the stated goals? I mean, <clears throat> a lot of legislators in these states uh, who supported laws like this were primarily worried about, uh, they didn't want African Americans moving into the state. And they were worried that black people, especially from the slave states, just to the south of Ohio, you have what's now West Virginia, it was Virginia then, you have Kentucky. People wanted to leave, black people wanted to leave those states. Um, some were already free and they wanted, they had become free and wanted to move into a free state. Others were literally running away from slavery, trying to get free and move into the free states. And so you often find the justification for these laws is we don't want a lot of black folks moving into our communities. We don't want them moving into our state. They tend to be poor. They will be a drain on public resources. They bring criminality. I mean, you find all kinds of justifications and excuses like that. People might fall short of saying they think that, you know, black people are racially inferior to whites. Some people said things like that, but others use these more kind of sociological justifications. We don't want these poor, poor people. I don't have anything against black folks. I just don't want poor people moving into our communities. Um, these were the kinds of arguments that were made in support of these racist laws, which, which explicitly set certain conditions on black people and made them a, a very much a kind of marginal class of people. Explain how the seeds of activism start to take root. As all these laws are being designed and built for a, a purposeful intent, how does activism start on a different side, on the other side? Um, who becomes an activist and what are the early arguments that activists make against these kinds of rules? Well, first of all, protests against these laws start very early. Now, in a place like Ohio, it's interesting uh, to think about, but there weren't too many newspapers in very early Ohio. So it's hard to find sources going all the way back to like 1804, 1805. But by the 1810s, we certainly see um, people speaking out against these kinds of laws. And one example of that, I mean, just to give an, so there's a sense in the early, very early part of the 1800s that these laws are spreading. So Ohio has come into the state with, or come into the union with, with these racist laws. There is an Indiana territory. It's not a state yet, but they have laws like this. Um, there's a sense uh, among a lot of white people that, that the free black population is growing, which was in fact true. Um, and that free black people were going to threaten to, to come into these uh, free states. 
So Pennsylvania starts to consider these laws. These such laws like this are proposed in Pennsylvania. And one example of protesting against them is a guy named James Fortin, who, if you know something about black history and especially the history of free African-Americans, you may have heard of James Fortin because he was a very prominent black Philadelphian. He was uh, a boy during the American Revolution and actually was on a, sh a, a privateering ship uh, during the revolution on the, on the US Patriot side. Um, and he later goes on to become a tremendous kind of activist in Philadelphia. And in 1813, 1814, he writes a series of letters that get published in a Philadelphia newspaper explaining why Pennsylvania should not adopt a law like laws like this. And he basically says very clearly, I mean, first of all, these laws are immoral. He says it's unethical, it's unjust to discriminate based on race. So yeah, you might be able to say, well, Poor people are a problem in general. Uh, they might, you know, somebody might say that and, and we need to have certain laws regulating vagrancy and poverty, but you can't group all people of one race into that category of being poor. So discrimination based on race is just wrong. He says it violates provisions in the Bible. He says it goes against the Declaration of Independence. He also argues that it goes against the Pennsylvania Constitution, which has a Bill of Rights of its own. And then he also describes in some detail the ways that these discriminatory laws would empower white people with ill intentions to do to abuse black people. So he says, uh, think about the constable. Think about the constable who is going to, you know, quiz people on their status. Think about the white rowdies, he says, who are going to go after black people and say, show me your papers, show me your papers. He says it's going to incite like white mob violence against black people because it's an example of having the law and public policy reinforcing white people, the, the, the racist preconceptions of a lot of white people. And so it's a very, very powerful um, set of letters that's later published as a pamphlet. And, and those types of themes that I just reiterate, uh, that I just mentioned, like first citing kind of major texts like the Bible and the Declaration of Independence, also talking about like how the laws would, would incite racist violence, how the laws would be ineffective. These are all the kinds of strategies that uh, black writers use to criticize the laws and also the white allies who cooperate in this movement also use. I've been, I have learned to answer, to ask questions as I, as they occur to me. And even though this, cause otherwise I'll forget them. And even though this may be better for the end of a discussion, I want to ask it now. So I don't forget um, what you are saying, the arguments that you're making or the, the arguments that were made that you are describing sound so much like what we hear to this very second in American history, citing the Declaration of Independence, citing our founding documents, and citing the common belief that people should just be treated okay, both socially and legally. Um, how do you process that? How do you as a historian look back and say, we're having these same discussions 235, 240 years later? Well, that's a that's a good question. I mean, you know, we're yes and no to the same discussions, right? So at that time in the United States, I mean, by by the there were millions of people who were enslaved in the United States, right? And there, I mean, by the time of the Civil War, there were four million enslaved 
people in this country who were bought and sold as chattel. People took out mortgages on them. Families were separated without care for the relationship of parents and children, um, husbands and wives. Um, and so we are not in the same place as we were. <laughs> and I don't mean century. to incest. I don't mean yeah, to, no. to say that we, I, I didn't mean to indicate that I thought we were, but it's just the parallels to me as you were, as I was listening to that were so striking. Absolutely. But I guess I want to point that out just because I do think sometimes uh, there's a tendency right now in public discussions about history to flatten things, whether it's flattening it all out like this has always been a great country, we want to have patriotic education of our children, or flatten it out like this has always been a singularly racist country and nothing's really ever changed either, right? So I, I want people to understand that um, there have been a lot of changes and, and not always for the better, right? The, that this country has gone in many different directions, but we're not, but I mean, the, the rhetoric um, is, there's a lot of very similar rhetoric and that is one of the things that kept me very interested in this project. I mean, there are a lot of things that were interesting to me about doing this book, but um, certainly one of them was the ways that the Declaration of Independence in particular has functioned uh, because it declares uh, that all people are created, all men are created equal and entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that that has been consistently a go-to document for people who are wanting to argue that the United States should live up to its best promises. Um, and that was true of the people that I study, and it, and it, it remains true. As you argue in the book, uh, the revolution helps to start the abolition movements, and we're talking about that now, but it also helps to foster, foster states' rights that are used to protect slavery. How do we deal with our perspective of the revolution, seeing these two very different tracks that it spawned? Yeah, I mean, it's complicated. And I, again, it goes back to, you know, something that's really front and center to me right now is these um, bills in state legislatures to um, try to ensure that teacher, to basically telling teachers how to teach and um, saying that certain aspects of the history of race and racism should not be taught in schools. And um, I think one of the places that that's coming from is at least on the, in some uh circles among conservatives is this idea that the only way to really talk about the United States is a patriotic history in which we were born this great country, we have the best founding documents, the Constitution set us uh, inevitably on a path toward greater freedom and greater equality for all people. And, um, you know, I just think that that's really not what happened in American history. And that we don't benefit anyone, especially our children, in talking about it that way. So to answer your question, I mean, it is a complicated founding. And on the one hand, there are sources from the founding of the United States that we can point to that go toward um, principles of equality, principles of liberation, principles of anti-racism. And there are also aspects of the founding that reinforce that slavery was legal, uh, that it was permitted to expand, that enslavers, slaveholders had tremendous power in this country, and that the Constitution really didn't stop that. In fact, it kind of helped them have power. Um, and, and we ignore that at our peril, right? We, we can't just sort of act like that didn't happen. Our show, uh, our show has covered 
violence against civil rights activists um, in the 1960s. It has covered it in the um, late 1800s, also in the um, early 1900s. Explain, if you can, the types of violence and how violence was used to try and suppress what we're calling a first civil rights movement in the United States. Well, and this goes a little bit to the earlier thing you mentioned, which is, you know, we want to talk about the relationship between the first civil rights movement, as I write about it, and abolitionism. But so I'm just going to now talk a little bit about, in general, when um, the abolitionist movement got underway, particularly in the 1830s, and um, Black people and white people started going around in small towns. They would go from town to town and try to give a lecture on uh, the immorality of slavery, why slavery was wrong. And then many times, as I write about, they were in a place like Ohio, they would also be lecturing on why Ohio or Illinois should repeal its racist laws. Um, and these abolitionists, including the white ones, met very often with uh, mobs with violent people, with people who uh, first would try to make sure that they couldn't give a lecture by not allowing there to be any space in the town for them to speak. Um, and then if uh, they could secure, let's say, like some church lets them give a lecture in there or some hall, that they would be, people would throw stones, tomatoes, what have you, at them. They would break windows. They would try to like run the people out of town. And they're really, what's going on there is they're trying to suppress the conversation, right? They're trying to make sure, they're trying to intimidate people into not speaking out. And for African-Americans, uh, it was e they were even more vulnerable. So I write a little bit about in the 1830s how there were uh, Black people mobilizing to petition the state legislature in Ohio to repeal their, their racist laws. And there were white abolitionists mobilizing too, and they were kind of separate. They had similar goals, but they were organizing in separate institutions. And when this one white abolitionist leader named Theodore Dwight Weld um, goes into a town in Ohio and tries to organize uh, a, an abolitionist rally or in, in advance of having a convention there, um, he's in touch with the African-American residents of the town and they come to him and say, we are not going to participate. And they say like, we want the white abolitionists to have their rally, but we don't think it's safe for us to participate. We've been threatened that we will lose our jobs if we participate. We've been threatened that our houses will be burned down. Um, and so we're gonna back out and kind of stay on the sidelines of this while you guys have your meeting because we just cannot risk it. Um, and there were times in, uh, in Northern cities that whole black communities were attacked and burned down for being perceived as agitating against slavery or agitating against the black laws or just being there, just their very existence. So their fears were very well founded. So this was a risky proposition to, um, to organize in this way. How did the violence impact the movements? Did it dissuade? Did the violence start to work? I mean, it, there are, many historians argue that the violence um, during Reconstruction helped to beat back um, the efforts to make a more equal society. What impact does this violence have? Um, yeah, and it's certainly true that the violence during Reconstruction did uh, did succeed in silencing um, and suppressing votes, and it was also a lot more um, pervasive and a lot more lethal. So many, many, many people who ran for office during Reconstruction were murdered. Um, many people who gave speeches were murdered, um, and you don't see that level of like killing in places like Ohio 
um, and other Midwestern places during the 19th century, uh, earlier 19th century. But, um, and I would say, I mean, it's hard to know because <laughs> Uh, you can't really read too much into silences. It's hard to know how many people were dissuaded from speaking up because they were afraid. Um, but there were some pretty tenacious people in Ohio. So for example, there was a really big um, kind of white uprising against the Cincinnati black community um, in 1841. I want to, I'm now, I'm like, uh, wavering on whether it's 41 or 42. Um, <laughs> all right, you're good. Where the where yeah. the white community gets really riled up and goes after the black community and they for the second time destroy the printing press of the abolitionist newspaper which is run by white editors and white reporters. They throw they destroy the press, throw it in the Ohio River. Um, and a guy named John Mercer, John Mercer Langston, an African-American uh, guy, was a boy then. He uh, experienced the riot. He described it, and his, he later goes on to become the first Black lawyer in Ohio and a United States congressman eventually, um, and wrote a memoir. And he describes what it was like to experience that. It was 1841, um, that Cincinnati <laughs> it just riot. just hit you now? Okay. Yeah. It, <laughs> um, it was terrifying. He describes like running through the streets, trying to find his older brother, seeking shelter in this one place where like several black men that he knew were. Um, but then he also describes how after it was over, he and his circle of people and also a lot of white activists were determined to just keep going. Like it actually made them feel like they were just not going to be silenced. They were going to continue to speak up. Uh, actually, you know, what happened also was that uh, abolitionists from elsewhere pooled money so that the newspaper could get, repair its printing press or get a new one and start printing again. Um, and so Langston describes them kind of coming back more invigorated, more determined than ever um, to, to keep fighting. But, you know, like, I don't want to romanticize this, right? Because some people might have said, no way, I'm not risking my, my family, my house, right? That, and so, so not everyone probably felt that, that way. One thing that you write about and that uh, occurs uh, to me as we're listening, as I'm listening to you describe all this, is that there are two fights going on. You describe fights over social status as much as you do fights over legal status. So, for, and I'm kind of making it up here, I'm riffing a little bit, but social status, and this might be too modern for our discussion, but social status might be getting an opportunity to be hired somewhere or to be given respect when you walk down the street. Um, legal status is something uh, different. Am I allowed to walk down the street? What is inherent? Uh, uh, what, what are the other things I'm allowed to do to participate and enjoy the full fruits of American life? Voting would be something. Um, what is inherently difficult about fighting over social status when legal status is preordained by the state? Right. I mean, in this book, I actually made a very um, deliberate choice to focus on what on what you're calling legal status. So um, there were, and historians have kind of written about this, actually more than the question of legal status, historians have tried to take the temperature, especially of white abolitionists and, and uh, you know, how racist were they really? And like, what did they believe in their heart of hearts? And, and white abolitionists sometimes use very paternalistic language. They would profess to believe in full racial equality. Some would even say they thought interracial 
interracial marriage was fine. They thought churches should be desegregated. They thought, they thought friendships and friend circles should be desegregated and like there should be no distinctions of status. And yet at the same time, these white abolitionists would say very paternalistic things about black people. Um, and so historians have really like got, been really interested in, in that and kind of calling them out and um, things like that. And then on just to, uh, you know, African-Americans were more likely to think that racism was just ridiculous, right? And to kind of believe that people should never make any distinctions based on race. And um, okay, so what I was most interested in this book was not what was in people's heart of hearts, especially, you know, in white people and this kind of analysis of like, what what did they believe in their hearts? I wanted to see what did they do to change public policy? <laughs> I was really relentlessly focused on like, how did people try to make political change? And like, if, so if some of the white people that I'm writing about who fought to repeal those racist laws in Ohio were actually also personally kind of racist. Like that was not what I was concerned with. Like I just actually wanted to see how a political movement could coalesce and try to do something that was very hard to do. And how did coalitions come together that try to accomplish that? And so, yeah, I really focused on like, what were the laws? How did they try to change the laws? There are arguments often made that if you look at when segregation becomes, when segregation became illegal, people then started to see it as less uh, appropriate or less just. After gay marriage becomes illegal, uh, becomes legal, more and more people over time say they're comfortable with gay marriage. Did you find that in your study that as laws were changed, people's hearts and minds change? I guess you didn't really want to focus on that in the book, but were you able to at all discern as to whether the legality of something then then um, set a precedent for how people felt about it. I wasn't able to discern that. I didn't really look for that. And yeah. also when you're studying the 19th century, it'd be really hard to kind yeah. of find that, except maybe every once in a while you see people in letters or diaries saying, um, like for example, here's an example. Um, there's a an aide to Abraham Lincoln when he was president who wrote, uh, they. Lincoln and his, a couple of his assistants stood outside on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington and watched the first U.S. colored troops, the first regiment of black soldiers recruited in the Civil War uh, parade, do a dress parade down Pennsylvania Avenue. And this guy who was a, an assistant to Lincoln later wrote, it's strange how many of us at the time didn't think, didn't, couldn't wrap our minds around having black soldiers and now we realize it was the most natural thing in the world to have had and that's not obviously an exact quote but you know he said he's reflecting back and saying even then we sort of doubted this and questioned it and now that it's so weird to even think that we ever doubted it um but usually you don't find things like that or at least i haven't but i i'm glad you brought that up because you did i did find people making that exact argument in the 19th century where they would say I don't care, you know, like prejudice, personal prejudice is one thing, change the laws, and then hopefully people will start to change their minds, like change the laws, change the laws. Because when you have racist public policy, it reinforces people's racist preconceptions, right? And, and that's what James Fortin was saying in his pamphlet too. Um, when you have laws that are equal, laws that treat everyone the same, it doesn't give 
authorization to people's prejudice, right? It does, it sort of makes people, it's going to make people say, well, I've got to leave that at home if I'm dealing with the legal system. Um, so, and I think we saw a discussion of that in the, you know, most recent administration as well, where what difference does it make when public leaders come out and say things that are racist, right? That is, we might know that people all over think those things privately, but when they're authorized by people in leadership positions or bylaws, it gives other people permission to say them, to act on them in a way that is actually not healthy first for our society. One thing I do want to talk about is uh, is the black family during this. Um, of course, there, you know, of course there were two um, there were two types of black families. There was an enslaved black family, and then you have free black families. And obviously, it's tough to get information about how um, enslaved black families were moved about and um, what their lives were like on a daily basis, um, at least in a specific sense. Um, when it comes to free black families in places like Ohio, uh, you write that some of them did thrive. Neighborhoods were built, businesses were built, families endured for generations. How did they do that? What do we know about, about, about families at that time and what their daily lives were like? The people who moved, the African-Americans who moved into the Midwest, um, I mean, first of all, one of, from, from sources, we can see that one of their biggest priorities was to secure the safety and well-being of families. And it was one of the things that was most put at risk by slavery, right? So people, you know, regularly, particularly in the Southeast where there was, there were more enslaved people than there were kind of jobs for them to do. So slave owners were constantly selling family members away from one another. It was terrifying, this sort of threat of sale that you would never see your family members again. And one of the incentives for getting free, for running away from trying to buy your own freedom was to uh, have your family be able to stay together. Um, and people moved into the Midwest. Uh, many of them were actually, we are kind of maybe in our imagination, we imagine people moving into cities mainly. And a lot of people did move into cities, but there were also a lot of black farmers. They were able to move onto agricultural land. They moved sometimes into black communities where a number of landowners would live uh, in close proximity to each other. And that way they could start a church of their own. They could start a school since their children were excluded from public education. So they often did start their own private schools and raise enough money to be able to pay a teacher. Um, and, you know, they were able with a, a little bit of the threat that someday these um, anti-black laws could be enforced against them or someday their white neighbors might rise up against them. But in many places that did not happen. Um, and so people were able to actually make lives for themselves. And the people who were more economically secure, whether it was because they were a relatively successful farmer or um, because they had a profession like being a teacher or being a blacksmith, they were the people who were also more likely to be involved in activism because they had more of a kind of economic security Security, more of a platform from which to do that. So, um, you know, one of the things that's really telling is people like to, I think some in some circles, people will emphasize the racism of the Midwest um, or sort of homogenize everything and say it was just as bad as the slave states. But you see a pattern in census after census after census every 10 years of steady increase of the Black population 
in those states at basically the same rate as white increase did. And, and most of the people were coming from slave states. So it's pretty clear that a lot of people who had the opportunity to migrate would migrate into the free state. I, I was just going to say, um, what's interesting is despite all these laws, blacks never stopped moving to Ohio, despite it being difficult to, um, to live there. And so um, I guess I want to ask, what were the fate of the Black Codes in Ohio? And how did this movement build to a point where some of them, at least, um, if not most of them, were able to be toppled? Um, it was really interesting reading about the Ohio Liberty Party and how they argue they're the true conservatives. We're going back to we're going back to the OG here. We want to we want to <laughs> truly have an equal society. Explain how Ohio and how this 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 crest is able to build there. Yeah, so Ohio is the place where the movement to repeal the Black Laws gets the most traction um, before the Civil War and. So the book's not only about Ohio, yeah, um, yeah. but there is a fair amount about it in there. And as you're saying, so the um, it the the repeal of the Ohio most of the Ohio Black Laws happens in 1849. And what I write about is kind of building up of momentum of this movement that wants to repeal the laws. At first, it starts out with like a tiny minority of kind of activists people who, who are arguing that the laws are unjust and they need to go. And the two major political parties, the Whigs and the Democrats, there may be a, a few people in each party who agree that the black laws are bad, um, but not nearly enough to get them repealed. And so uh, the activists create this Liberty Party, um, which is partly invested in stopping the spread of slavery. But at home, obviously, slavery is not a factor in Ohio. I mean, they're not, nobody's talking about institutionalizing actual slavery in Ohio. So their domestic agenda, if you will, in their home state is to repeal the Black laws. And uh, Liberty Party candidates for state legislature and for governor campaign on repealing the Black laws. They draw awareness to the fact that the laws exist, that they're wrong, that a lot of people object to them. They force uh, candidates from the two major parties to respond to the issue. So it's an example of a, a third party kind of inserting itself and changing the debate a bit. And they end up kind of exposing certain forms of hypocrisy, like the um, the Democratic candidate in this one 1846 governor's race um, in the southern part of the state will say, no, this was the Whig candidate in the southern part of the state will say, oh, no, no, we're going to keep most of the black laws. Uh, I'm, I'm fine with them. But then in northern Ohio, where there are a lot of abolitionists, he'll say, I want Appeal, and this, then the Liberty Party people can say, see, you're a hypocrite, you're, you have no principles actually. Um, and so between one thing and another, I mean, the Liberty Party and the third party movement gains steam and draws attention to this issue and growing numbers of Whigs in particular uh, support repeal of the Black Law, but not quite enough. And then there's this kind of pivotal 1848 election where the legislature is very closely divided and then these third party folks can swing their power to one direction or the other, to the Whigs or the Democrats, whichever party will cooperate with repeal. And so they end up uh, going over to the side of the Democrats, which was surprising to some folks, um, and repealing these noxious law, most of the noxious laws they create for the first time public schools for African-American children. They stop the registration laws. They stop the racist testimony law. They repeal all of those. Um, and that's a real victory for this movement. And um, I kind of draw a parallel or a, a contrast between that happening in Ohio and in Illinois 
Uh, the opposite is happening around the same time where Illinois is dominated by the Democratic Party and there's not the same kind of opportunity for the third party movement, although it exists there, to kind of make inroads into the state government. Politics is just a mess. It doesn't matter when you're. <laughs> it doesn't matter when you're asking about. Even the most noble of efforts are just complicated. Uh, we learned that lesson again and again on this show. Where do these movements then intersect with? I mean, I'm glossing over a lot of history here, but where do these movements intersect with the Civil War and then the Reconstruction amendments? How do those? You know, the, there's this this growing divide in the United States between the North and South, and there are some border states. And then there's this effort at the end of the Civil War to start with the 13th Amendment and then uh, keep on going to the 14th and 15th. So uh, how do the movements um, change and grow with the road to the Civil War? And then how does it all come together with these Reconstruction Amendments? So in the book, I, I discuss, and this kind of picks up from your last question, in a way, I talk about how this position about the need to repeal racist laws, even where you have conditions of freedom, or like there's not slavery, but you have various kinds of racially discriminatory laws. So like a lot of white Americans were actually very comfortable with that in this period. So I talk about how this movement to argue that racist laws are inappropriate, have no place in American life, goes from being very marginal in the North, even in the free states, to making its way toward the center of American politics. And so by the end of the 1850s, when Abraham Lincoln becomes a kind of leading light of the Republican Party and the Republican Party forms, really implicit, it's not a central front and center issue for the Republicans, the way that the extension of slavery is. But really intrinsic to the thinking of most leading Republicans is the idea that we don't like these laws that abridge the basic rights of people based on race. Um, I single out voting and talk about it a little bit differently. Most of the consensus that I'm talking about is around these basic civil rights that I have been kind of discussing in the book. So the right to uh, testify in court, to own property, to move about freely from place to place. And then they, they sort of thought about voting and holding office. They called those political rights. And Republicans were more divided about those rights at the beginning of the Civil War. And so by the time that the Republicans take power in 1860, um, Lincoln is elected, you're going to have secession and a civil war, you have a political party for the first time that not only uh, thinks slavery is wrong and should be constrained, uh, if not totally abolished, but also supports basic civil rights for all people, regardless of race. And I discussed in the book how they then go about, the Republicans in federal office then go about um, implementing this policy of racial equality wherever they think they have the constitutional power to do that. Um, and I show also that a number of Republicans had actually been involved in this first civil rights movement before the Civil War, right? So it's literally people like Sam and Chase of Ohio, Henry Wilson of Massachusetts, and others who they're on the record calling for repeal of racist laws and really caring about this issue even before they get into uh, get into power in Congress. And then, yeah, or go ahead. Well, well, I, I was just going to ask: after Reconstruction fails, do we know what the reaction, what the reactions were among people who took part in this first civil rights movement? Well. That's interesting. So, and there's a fair amount at, about in my book that's about these questions of federalism. And um, so 
as you as we've been discussing, a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about is going on in the state level because it's not actually until Reconstruction that you get federal oversight over civil rights. So before we skip go to Reconstruction failing, let me just mention that yeah, like the please, culmination yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> of the book. No, no, no. It's is that these same people then are responsible for crafting the first federal civil rights statute, the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which actually puts federal authority over civil rights for the first time. So all the stuff that we were talking about, about racist laws in Ohio, were not considered unconstitutional at the time, right? Racist laws in any state were not considered to violate the US Constitution. A lot of people are surprised by that. So it wasn't until the Republicans take power and pass of a civil rights statute in 1866, and then this, the 14th Amendment, which is also passed in 1866 and ratified two years later, that uh, you have a federal prohibition on the states having these kind of policies. And that is critically important, uh, that there is some kind of federal bar below which states can't go. We never had that before then. And I think, you know, we can think about parallels to the present day as well with that, where, you know, what are the limits of federal power when it comes to individual rights? And what are the times that federal power needs to step in and kind of draw a line uh, beyond which states can't go? So after, you know, these measures are kind of undermined by Southern white people primarily, a lot of this reverts back to the states. And it's interesting to read some late 19th century accounts of, for example, I just found it really fascinating. I didn't really write about this, but by the late 19th century, people are writing kind of personal memoirs about the history of the struggle against the Ohio black laws, for example, or like the history of abolitionism. You have people like they're now, they're older and they're writing about their experiences and they write about those racist laws as if they were a quaint relic of the past. So they, it's only a few decades later and Ohio, all those Midwestern states never re-implemented those laws. And in fact, the after Reconstruction in terms of federal enforcement came to grief, the states of the North continue to pass civil rights legislation. And so they now, by the late, late 19th century, many of them think that like, oh, those bad old days when we had these discriminatory laws, that was awful, that was so long ago. And it's really fascinating that they so quickly felt like they had gotten beyond that. One thing that, and I'm gonna talk for a second here, um, one thing that strikes me with this whole discussion is that it's really easy to gloss these stories over if you take a really long view, a long look at history. Um, for instance, there was the Boston Massacre, and then there was a proclamation that we should all be equal, but there was slavery, and then there wasn't slavery because of the Civil War. And then you could say, well, segregation took hold, and we needed laws to stop that. The system you described, though, in the book is all-encompassing. It makes daily life miserable. It made life stressful for millions of people. Um, I think about the story that you told about uh, Gilbert Horton. Um, but uh, in short, people should have been able to expect more of their country and of their precious time on earth. And instead, they spent their lives on the run from the law, from violence. Um, how should we use the story of your book to inform our view of American history. What do you want us all to walk away thinking or saying about the grind, about the struggle that this country has put people through? I mean, one thing that we can really, it's hard, it's hard to boil it all down. And I, I but, know, you know, that's, I know, it's a bit, I, I know, but go ahead, try. <laughs> it, I mean, it's, it is, 
one of the most fundamental ways that I think about all of this, and I've been writing about this kind of stuff for quite a long time, is we are, it is all about the legacies of slavery in this country. There were, it was 250 years of slavery that was race-based. And okay, it was abolished in 1865 with the 13th Amendment, but not before it had laid its tentacles into kind of every area of American life, including the kinds of prejudices that that people developed, including the kinds of prejudices that are like, uh, you know, I don't have a problem with people who are black. I just have a problem with people who are poor. Like all of these associations that are conscious and unconscious, all of these institutions, right? And, and people often will say, well, we also had more than 100 years of legalized Jim Crow, right? So the, the legal oppressions of that, that are associated with racism did not even end with slavery itself. But, I'm, but I would just say that all of Jim Crow was an outgrowth of having had slavery. It's all of it is. And so when we look at our country that way, you know, we can see a lot of good struggles that have happened that have made things better for people that have tried to get rid of some of the disastrous consequences of that institution. And we can also see some of the very nasty, very pernicious ways that the effects of that institution have stayed with Americans, stayed with white Americans in particular. And so when I'm teaching this kind of material, when I'm thinking about it, I feel like this book and other books like it have a lot to teach us about the length of this struggle and the significance of it. When we are dealing now with issues of racism, with issues of, you know, disparate wealth disparities, um, you know, institutional structures that, that disfavor African-Americans and other people of color, we have to actually put that in the context of like this humongous project that, that we have all been sucked into, whether we volunteered to or not, of trying to live in this country that, that is affected and tainted by 250 years of race-based slavery. And which side we're on in kind of trying to deal with, with the history that was handed to us is the choice that we have to make, right? Every one of us is making a choice about which, what we are doing with the history that we were handed. And I think that's, you know, that's the message that I would try to get across besides some, some smaller messages about coalition politics, about working with people you don't always agree with, about the importance of political change, um, why it matters to engage politically, um, why that actually makes a huge difference and, and that disengaging really doesn't solve any problems. Um, I don't. I don't love questions or I don't love crutch questions. And this question has become kind of a crutch to me, but I think it's a useful one. So I want to ask it. If there could be a monument that encapsulated this period of the civil rights movement and could be a vessel to the people who visit Washington DC today, for example, let's put it next to the Martin Luther King monument. Uh, what would a monument to the first civil rights movement look like? Who would be in it? If any particular person um, or what um, what pieces to it would there be to explain this time period? Well, my mind is blown. Um, I, <laughs> I have not thought about that. I mean, one, I've been involved in some conversations about monuments, and one of the things, one of the points people sometimes make is nobody's perfect, um, and we should actually have monuments to ideas rather than to individual people. So let's let's think about it. I don't know if I firmly believe that or not, but you know, um, 
I don't know if I would attach it to a particular person. I like the idea of it being, I, you know, I am really moved. It, you said the monument had to be in Washington, D.C. I it doesn't have to. Have to. It, I, it doesn't I have would to. put a monument, and there already is in a way, but I would put a monument on the banks of the Ohio River. I might make the monument a bridge uh, from Kentucky into Ohio or Indiana. Um, there already are some things a little bit like this um, where, and I would have the monument be about mobility and bridges and, um, and, and human rights and human rights for every, that, because that's another thing about this movement that is that it was about kind of hum, fundamental human rights for all people. Um, and I think that I would emphasize those things, but I, I, I think we need to pay more attention to the Ohio river. You, would you put an inscription dedicated to the soldiers of the first civil rights movement, something like that? Sure. But we would probably call them like freedom fighters. Or, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Yes. Because absolutely. Yeah. Although, and I also think just to say a little bit more, I, I think it would be interesting to have a monument to the reconstruction amendments in Washington, DC. Um, and I think attributing some credit for those to the first civil rights movement would be a great idea. Um, and I, I think we really need to better understand the impact of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments on our Constitution um, because they are critically important. And it also helps us see that the, the, the rights that we think we have now or that, we, that many people claim now are not the product of the first original Constitution, but are in fact the product of this exact struggle that we've been talking about here. Monument to Reconstruction, an interesting idea. Uh, lots of interesting ideas here. Dr. Kate Mazur, author of Until Justice Be Done, America's First Civil Rights Movement from the Revolution to Reconstruction. Thanks so much for being here. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. Certainly check out that book and her Twitter feed, at Kate Mazur. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports, History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. See you next time. Thanks. <laughs>